0: Today, I would like us to continue um, thinking about Jesus Christ and how Mark's gospel uh, portrays Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles with you, please um, open up with me to Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 33. Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 33. I've not put the entire text on the slide because it's quite long. I've just put the part that we will be uh, focusing on later on. But I'll be uh, reading now from verses 14 to 33. The reason why um, when we when we teach and preach, we choose sometimes to read a longer scripture is because probably the most important um, lesson to keep in mind when you read the Bible, um, and I think it's true for any other text also, um, is context. Pay attention to context. Um, and it's um, very important in the Gospels as well. Many times we just focus on one or two verses, but because we uh, neglect the context, we ignore the context, we miss the meaning. right? So the context is important here um, as well. So from, verses four, from beginning with verse 14 in Mark chapter 8. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? and ears but failed to hear. And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them, want to thank you for this occasion, for this privilege we have to be in your house once again. And Father, we pray that as we have come here to be together with you, to fellowship with you, we pray that you may speak now to us through your word and through these stories that we have read. Father, I pray that you may use me and give me the strength and the right words to proclaim your message today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The reason why I have read the text leading up to our passage um, which is the conversation Jesus has with his disciples about his true identity is this. The disciples struggle to see who Jesus is all throughout the gospel until chapter 9. They don't recognize that he's the Messiah, that he has the power to do things that human beings cannot do. It is interesting because the reason why Jesus gets so upset with them here is why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see? It seems like he's getting impatient with his disciples. The reason why this happens is because he multiplied the bread already before. This was the second time that they were in the same situation where they forgot to bring bread for the multitudes. And they think that Jesus is upset with them because they have not enough bread with them. And Jesus says, Why do you argue about it? Don't you remember? I've multiplied the bread before. In Mark, we read that twice Jesus stills the storm. So, this, on one occasion, they are in the boat, Jesus sleeps, and uh, they all panic, and they say, Don't you care? We are about to drown, and he stills the storm. And then on a second occasion, again, they're in a storm, and they get all afraid. And Jesus comes again, and he stills the storm. So, for three years now, they've been together with Jesus, and they've witnessed all the miracles. And there comes a point where Jesus seems to be already fed up with them. And he says, don't you, don't you still see? Don't you understand? Don't you understand that I am the Messiah? I can do things that you cannot do. I am the Son of God. You should know that by now. You should be trusting me by now. I've done that in the past. It's a bit like us sometimes when God works um, in our lives. God helps us um, And then when we come to a similar situation maybe and we face a similar problem, we panic again and we forget about what God has done. And it is similar here. The disciples forget what Jesus Christ has done. They fail to see. Now, it is interesting because what follows after this, what Mark chooses to add after this episode with the multiplying of bread, is a healing of a man who is blind. And the healing, if you... um, Paid attention to the story was quite interesting. What do we know from Jesus? How does he usually heal people? Is it, is it ever difficult for him to heal anyone? It's not, isn't it? It is not difficult for him to steal the storm. It is not difficult for him to heal somebody who has leprosy or who is lame. We know of stories where he would just reach out his hand or he would just come and stand up and walk, right? It is as easy as that. And even dead people and we, see, we saw how he raises dead back to life. And yet you've got a person here who is blind. And it seems that Jesus is really struggling. If you remember the story we just read, it says that they were together with the people in the village. And he uh, spat on the ground. He uh, took that uh, clay or whatever you want to call it. He, he took that up and he put it on his eyes, on the man's eyes. And he started to see, but he couldn't see properly yet. He said, yes, I can see, but it's all a bit blurry. Um, I can see people, but they are like trees, right? And I don't know what the disciples thought. Maybe they were thinking, oh, maybe after three years, his powers are leaving him. No, he doesn't have the power anymore to heal like he had before. And then Jesus says, come outside with me, come outside the village. And then he does it again, and he can see perfectly. Why does Mark include this healing story in between two episodes of Jesus talking to his disciples about his identity. I think the point that Mark is trying to do here is that finally, yes, in the second conversation Jesus has with the disciples, they realize that he's the Messiah. For the first time in the Gospel, Peter and the disciples say, Oh, now we see you are the Messiah. It's all coming together. And yet, when you read on, They realize that what we thought about the Messiah, the Messiah we expected, is not the Messiah Jesus Christ is. The point is this, and the reason why Mark is putting the stories together the way he does is this. The disciples see Jesus, but it is very blurry. They don't really understand yet who the Messiah is. It is, if you want, a first. Success for them in in their journey towards understanding Jesus. For the first time, they recognize who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. And then Jesus tells them, Yes, I am the Messiah. But you know what? The Messiah has to die, he has to suffer and die. And then it all falls apart again. Uh, Peter, who just was, uh, who who just um, is uh, commended by Jesus, um, and uh, Jesus tells him, Well done, Peter right, and I can imagine Peter being quite happy that uh, Jesus is praising him in front of the other disciples, all of a sudden uh, Jesus turns to him and he says behind me Satan Um, and Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter does not want to accept that the Messiah has to suffer. So the reason why we have that healing story here is really this. The disciples see, but they see only partially. They can see, they are starting to see Jesus is the Messiah yet they're vision of the Messiah, the understanding of the Messiah, is not yet complete. They are still lacking in understanding who the Messiah really is. He is the Messiah, but not the Messiah they expected. He is the Messiah, but not the man that just came to do the things that they wanted him to do. He came as the Messiah and Jesus says, I came to suffer and die. Right? So this is the introduction to the story. I want us to look today at what Jesus Christ teaches in this second conversation he has with the disciples when he talks about the Son of Man and what the Son of Man must do. The first thing that he says, allow me to read that again, is this. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He spoke plainly, which means he didn't use parables or anything. He wanted to make sure that the disciples would not misunderstand him. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. It is something that is not optional. It is not something that he can choose. He must suffer. It is planned by God. It is the reason why Jesus Christ came. It is a part of God's plan for Jesus to die. His death is not by chance. We all remember that episode in the garden when Jesus Christ prays. And it seems that as the cross was nearing and the crucifixion was nearing, Jesus Christ, although he knew why he was born, why he came to earth, in his prayer, before he had to experience that anguish on the cross, he prays and he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass me by. Let it pass me by. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. The reason why Jesus Christ had to die was because it was the will of the Father. It was necessary for him to die. Peter rebukes Jesus because for Peter, it doesn't make any sense. Just think about it. Imagine you were in the shoes of Peter. You saw how Jesus Christ healed the sick. You saw how he raised the dead. It doesn't make any sense for a man who has that power, power to overcome even death, to be crucified by human beings. And you can see that even when Jesus hangs on the cross, people ridicule him and they shout, he has saved others, he cannot save himself. So it doesn't make sense. You have saved others from from death and yet here you hang on the cross and you are dying. It doesn't make sense. We are um, quick to condemn Peter and to say, oh, why did he not understand that Jesus had to die? But I doubt that any of us would have responded any differently if we were in the shoes of Peter. It doesn't really make sense. Why would Jesus Christ have to die? For Jesus, listening to Peter, it was a bit It was a bit like a flashback. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, It was the devil who told him the same thing. You don't have to die. I can make you prince over this world without you having to die. And this is why I think Jesus is so stern with Peter. He says, behind me Satan, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. This is not the will of God. I have come and I must die. The reason why his death was a necessity is this. First of all, he died as a ransom for humans. He died as a ransom for us. Without Jesus, we could not be free, as simple as that. He became our ransom. To ransom someone means that if you are uh, held captive by someone, if you are kidnapped by someone, somebody pays a price so that you get free, so that you are set free again. You pay the ransom. Now, Mark uses this terminology. He talks about ransom in 1045 when Jesus says that I will die as a ransom for many. To say that all of us, in effect, we are kept under bondage. We are not free. If you want, we have been kidnapped by someone. We are not free. And Jesus has come to set us free. Now, one of the biggest lies maybe today is that people think that we are truly free. We are free. We can do whatever we want. The Bible says that whatever political system you live under, you are never truly free until Jesus Christ sets you free. The reason why is not because there is a political dictator that is keeping you captive. The reason why you cannot be free is because there is a principle of sin. There is evil in this world that does not allow you to do the things that you want to do. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans. He says, the good things I want to do, I cannot do. He says, there are so many good things I'm planning to do, I cannot do. You know, sometimes people think that um, the reason why Jesus Christ had to come and set us free, the reason why Jesus Christ died for us is because we cannot live up to the standard that God has for us. And that is true. None of us can live to the standard that God has for us. But I think what is also true would be to say that we cannot even live up to the standard that we set ourselves. Isn't it? And I think this illustrates that principle of sin that I'm talking about. That if you talk to people in the world, to anyone, whether they are Christians or not, and you ask them, what are your standards in life? In regards to raising your children, it's Mother's Day today. As a mother, what is your standard in life? How much time do you want to spend with your children? As your husband, what is your standard in life? If people could live to their standards, why are there still so many broken families? If they could live according to the standards they set themselves for their families, how, why do so many marriages still fall apart? If husbands could live to the standard that they set themselves. Does that make sense? It is not just about breaking the standards of God. Even our own human set standards, we cannot live up to them. We are ransomed, Jesus said, and I have come to set you free. I've come to free you from under that bondage of sin to help you live lives in freedom. Lives where you can be faithful to the promises you make to your families and to God and even to yourself. I have come to set you free. And secondly, he has come to bear the judgment of God. I will strike the shepherd, God says, and the sheep will be scattered. It is the sheep that deserve to die. It is us who committed sin. Yet it is the shepherd who was struck. It is Jesus Christ who was struck. Instead of the sheep suffering for the sins they commit, it is the shepherd who is struck. Is that not interesting? We talked about it in Exodus. We said that sometimes we think when God forgives, he can just say, you know what? I just ignored the bad things you did and that is it. There doesn't have to be a judgment. It is one of the things that we don't like as modern people, talking about the judgment of God. But again, we said, if you look at human relationships, this is not how it works. If I wrong someone, somebody has to pay the price for it. If I destroy the mobile phone of Brother Gary, I have to pay the price for it, right? Because I destroyed it. Now, Brother Gary can say, you know what? I forgive you, right? I forgive you. You don't have to pay 500 pounds to replace my new iPhone, right? Now, when Brother Gary says that I forgive you, what he says is, I'm going to pay the price. Isn't it? Somebody has to pay the price because that phone is broken. So forgiveness is not easy. And we said, this is why sometimes we fail in human relationships to really forgive each other because we think forgiveness is easy. We might say easily, oh, I forgive you, not realizing that when you forgive someone, you have to pay the price for the damage that has been done. The same The thing is mentioned here again. The sheep committed the sin. Somebody had to pay the price. It was either the sheep or the shepherd. Because God is just. He cannot just ignore the wrongs that are done. Somebody has to pay the price. But because he is also loving, he says, I am going to be the one who will pay the price. I'm going to forgive you. This is what forgiveness means. You pay the price yourself. God says, I am going to pay the price myself. You are forgiven. Jesus Christ came because God forgave us of our sin. Like Peter, many today are only interested in the Messiah who heals human hurts, but reject the Son of Man who suffered for our sin. We started off saying that the disciples started to see, but the vision was still blurry. The vision was still blurry. I've read a story, um, or it, it's not really a story, it's a, a fact apparently about people who um, need uh, dogs, uh, guide dogs, because they are blind. And what I've read is this, and it's really interesting, it says that people who are partially blind find it more difficult to get used to guide dogs than people who are completely blind. Because people who are only partially blind, they think that they can still manage on their own. They might have the dog, and the dog might tell them, stop, but they think, ah, no, it's not really red. It looks like green. Let me just cross the road, right? Because they can still see a little bit. They would rather rely on the little bit of sight they have than rely on the dog, the guide dog that is trained and fully capable of leading them. The point is this. It is dangerous, and probably more dangerous, to have only a partial vision and understanding of Jesus than to have no understanding at all. If you have no understanding at all, you know, ask me about God, I don't know anything. And I have to deal with the consequences if I reject knowing about him. The problem is that there are many people who grow up maybe in church or in Christian families and they have a partial understanding of God, a partial understanding of Jesus. And they grow up with that that understanding. The problem and the danger is this. If that understanding is not correct, They might have a false sense of security, thinking that, oh, everything is fine when everything is not fine. And to be more precise, the problem that we have many times is the problem that Peter had. We think of Jesus as this God figure that we can run to whenever we have a problem. And he is there to do whatever we want for us. Jesus is there only to do stuff for us. And this is how they experienced the Messiah for three years. There was a need. Jesus was always there to do something for them. There was no food. Jesus was willing and ready to provide for, to do something for them. Here for the first time, Jesus says, you know what? The Messiah is not just here to do stuff for you. The Messiah has come to do something in you, inside of you. The problem we have today is that we think that Jesus is only there to do stuff for us. You have a problem, you have an exam, run to Jesus. He will help you get an A in your exam. You want an increment, run to Jesus. Uh, He will just touch the mind of your manager and she will give you an increment. Whenever I have a problem, I run to Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus is the Messiah. But he's also the son of man who came to die for our sin. He wants to do something in us. He wants to change us. Does that make sense? Let us not be fooled. To think that Jesus is just there to help us whenever we need help. And when we don't need help, thank you very much, but there is no room for you in my life. Jesus has come to do something inside of us, to transform us day by day. Day by day, Jesus is doing something in us. He wants to do something in us. He's the Son of Man who came to set us free from the sin that keeps us bondage. Amen? You don't seem very excited about this Messiah. I can just imagine the disciples looked like you when Jesus told them that. Oh, we had hoped for something else. But this is who Jesus is, whether we like it or not. We talked the last time about it, that if God is true, if Jesus is real, we don't get to choose how he is, who he is. He is sovereign. We either accept him as he is, or we don't. But he will never change to please us. Amen? Amen. The second point is this, the Son of Man came to be an example or an exemplary saviour. He's an example for us as we follow him. Again, we might be thinking that to follow Jesus is just that. We look at the first part of the Gospel of Mark and it seems to be great to follow Jesus, isn't it? Until this point, it was great to follow Jesus and this is why there were multitudes. We read that when he was multiplying the bread, we are talking about thousands of people that followed Jesus. How many of those thousands of people were with Jesus when he was crucified? How many of his disciples were with Jesus when he was crucified? It's easy to follow a Messiah who can do miracles, who can do mighty works, but a suffering son of man who is ridiculed and humiliated, that is a different story. And yet it is here at this point that Jesus teaches them about discipleship. It is not at an earlier point when he was basking in glory and fame, and there were thousands of people that were following him, that Jesus was teaching them about what it means to follow him. It is at this point, when he starts talking about suffering and dying on the cross, that he says, there's a lesson that I was always burning to tell you. I wanted to tell you what it really means to follow me. I think this is the right time. As you are having a better understanding of who I am, let me start teaching you about discipleship. The first thing is this, you have to deny yourself. To follow me means that you deny yourself. It is the opposite, if you want, of what Peter does around the campfire. You remember later on, uh, Jesus uh, is on trial and the crowds have gathered outside, and Peter is also there. Now he doesn't have the courage to be uh, at the side of Jesus, but he's there outside uh, with the people who are waiting news to hear what will happen to this Jesus. And then someone all of a sudden says, oh, you, you seem quite familiar. Are you not one of the disciples of Jesus? And Peter, the Bible says, denies Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. says, oh no, I don't know him. Now, there are only two instances when the word deny is used in the New Testament. This particular word, it is in these two instances when Peter denies Jesus and when Jesus says you have to deny yourself. So to deny yourself is to do the opposite to what Peter did. You set aside your interests For the interests of God. To follow me, Jesus Christ says, is that you set aside your own interests for my interests. The reason why Peter denied Jesus was because he was not willing and he didn't have the courage to set aside his own interests. To to deny yourself means this that you are aware of what your dreams, what your aspirations are, what your interests are, and you Compare them with the interests of God. And whenever there's a contradiction, you don't say, uh, let me compromise on what God wants me to do. But you say, I will let go of the dreams and aspirations that I had for my life because I am denying myself. I am following Jesus Christ. This is what it means to deny yourself. It implies that it is not always easy to follow Jesus, that sometimes there is this contradiction, there is this conflict of interest in your life. Will I go there or not? Will I help him or not? Will I commit or not? And to follow Jesus in that situation, in that instance, means that you put the priorities and interests of God first. Self-denial has nothing to do with what some people do during Lent. Right? They say, oh, during Lent I will not eat chocolate. I'm not going to eat meat for 40 days before Easter. Right? Why? Because I'm denying myself. You know, and uh, you can do whatever you want all throughout the year, but uh, during this time I, I try to become very holy. And, um, you know, if uh, I was cursing before, uh, during Lent I will not curse. You know, um, uh, if I uh, didn't go to church during Lent, I will go to church. If I um, ate too much before, during Lent I will not eat too much, right? Say, oh, now I've really done something great for the Lord. Jesus doesn't say that you deny something for me, he says, you deny someone. You deny someone, you deny yourself. It's not about setting aside a thing or two. It is setting aside yourself. It is denying yourself, not just some things. This can mean different things for us. It can mean that for the proud, we renounce the desire for status and praise. For the greedy, it means that we we renounce our appetite for more and more. If we are lazy, to deny ourselves might mean that we renounce the love for ease and comfort. If we are very image conscious, it can mean that we give up our desire to impress others. There are things that are important to us, things that have become habitual to us already. This is how we are. This is who we are. We compare ourselves with the demands of Jesus and we say, whatever goes against what God wants from my life, I'm setting it aside. And not just for 40 days before Easter, but I do that all throughout the year. Because you follow Jesus not only during Lent. We follow Jesus all throughout the year. Secondly, he says, take up your cross. You have to take up your cross and follow me. The cross, of course, spoke of shame and death. It was a shameful death to die. Again, it is not about dealing with normal suffering. Some might say, oh, you know, my work is very hard, but what can I do? This is my cross in life. You know, I'm a nurse uh, and that's very difficult. And this is the cross that God gave me to carry in my life. This is not what bearing or carrying your cross means. Because carrying your cross is that you lose your life, Jesus says, for the gospel and for Jesus Christ. It is being a nurse and being a Christian nurse in particular. It is being an employee in that company where maybe uh, many of your colleagues um, lie or are dishonest. And you say, no, because I'm a Christian, I choose not to be dishonest. So you uh, are ready to deal with the consequences of that. Because you say, I am a Christian and I follow Jesus, right? It is the suffering that we have and that we endure because we follow Jesus Christ. There's a lot of suffering in our life that has nothing to do with the gospel. Let's be very clear about it. Uh, we can suffer many times because of our own wrong decisions. Let's not make the mistake to say, oh, I'm, I'm carrying my cross, right? What can I do? No, you're not carrying your cross because God never intended for you to experience that difficulty in your life. You're experiencing that because of the wrong decisions that you have made. To carry your cross means that you are willing to deal uh, with the humiliation, with the persecution, um, with the shame maybe even, that comes from following Jesus Christ even in the world today. This is what it means to carry our cross. It is living your life or losing your life for the gospel and for Jesus. Somebody once said this, and I believe that this is very fitting for what we are discussing here. I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. Do you agree with that? Christianity is a difficult religion. It is a difficult faith. Some of you might not like the word religion because we say, oh, we are not religious. But replace it with faith. What he says is that Christianity is not an easy faith. It is difficult. If you read the demands of Jesus, Christianity is a difficult faith. The problem is, though, that sometimes we present it as very easy. So oh, it's easy to follow Jesus. There are many benefits. This Make no mistake about it. Jesus says, to follow me means that you will live and receive abundant life. And there are many joys that we have and many blessings that God has given us. But at the same time, we need to realize that it is not always easy. It is not always easy because we live in a fallen world that somehow is geared against the laws of God, that more and more um, rebels against the will of God. And this is why it becomes more and more difficult to live as a Christian, even in the Western world. We live in a fallen world where many people don't agree with what the Bible says. It was not easy for the disciples, and it's not always easy for us. Christianity is a difficult faith. Now, why are we then still here? The question, um, you know, we could ask that question. Why are we still here? It is a bit like when Jesus had a different conversation with Peter, when in John chapter 6, he tells them, uh, you know, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And he was uh, already hinting at the crucifixion. And all of a sudden, there were thousands of people, because again, it was in the context of a multiplication of bread, There were thousands of people. When Jesus made that announcement, what happened? All of them disappeared. They were gone. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Why are you still here? I've just told you it's very difficult to follow me. Why are you still here? And Peter says, Lord, we are here because you have the word of life. Yes, it is difficult, but we know that you give us true life. True contentment, true fulfillment, true happiness and joy comes from following you. Yes, it might be difficult. It might be difficult, but there's no other option. You're the only source of life. You're the only source of life. And I hope that this is why we are here also. We understand that it is not always easy to follow Jesus. Yet we are here in this place. We worship God because we know that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? A few years ago, um, in Newsweek uh, magazine, there was an article about a new type of backpack travel. I don't know if any of you ever tried backpack travel, where you take your gear with you and you go hiking up mountains. It's quite difficult, right, because of the weight of what you carry and uh, you eat out of cans and all that. It is not easy. Now, there was a new form of backpack um, travel that was invented a few years back, or somebody came up with that idea, and he called it backcountry light. You can read about that in uh, Newsweek a, f- a few years ago. They featured that, and the idea was that you venture into um, Alaska, or whatever um, you know uh, territory you want, but without having to worry about all the sweat and pain and so on. Now the way it works is like this: you uh, go ahead without the gear, and there is a professional company that waits for you at your destination, who sets up camp for you. So when you arrive, there's a beautiful Uh, tent that awaits you, the bed is ready for you, you can rest, there's food prepared for you, and all you do is you just hike to that place um, at your own uh, time, depending on how fast you want to go, and somebody is waiting for you there to serve you. Now, when we think at Christianity, when we think about Christianity today, it seems to me that it is a bit similar to this. Christianity originally, when Jesus Christ talked about following him, was supposed to be quite difficult, a bit like backpack traveling. It is not easy. It is worth it, yes, but it is not easy. Yet we have come up and we attempted, churches attempted to come up with something called Christianity Light. Take away all the hardship, right? Just, you know, and enjoy the ride, right? You enjoy the songs, enjoy the songs, We enjoy the fellowship, We enjoy the fellowship, oh, that's fine, right? This is what Christianity then becomes for us. And we forget that, actually, Christianity is not just that. It is more than just the fellowship that we enjoy here on a Sunday. It is the life of a disciple that we live from Monday to Saturday, where we live in a world that is opposed to our values. Does that make sense? There's a temptation for all of us to give in and to say, oh, let's remove the demands of Jesus. Let's ignore the demands of Jesus. How come that passages like this are not very well known? You don't see them very, very often on Facebook. How many, when was it the last time you saw these verses that we have read on Facebook? There's so many Christian things that you read on Facebook, isn't it? About all the wonderful promises of God. And we say that, oh, we post that because we want to uh, you know, tell people that we are Christian and help them understand what Christianity is all about. When did you read any, anything like this on Facebook? To follow me, you have to take up your cross, you have to deny yourself, full stop. Have you ever read that? I've never read that. I've read hundreds of posts on Facebook, Christian posts, but I've never read that. Yet this is the very heart of what Jesus Christ teaches about discipleship. You might say that, oh no, we are not tempted to give into Christianity light, but is that not evidence that we are actually tempted, that we uh, carefully ignore the verses that seem so difficult and we just go for what is easy. Let's make no mistake, both are true. He is the Messiah who is able to help, who is promising to be with us in all life situations. But he's also the Son of Man who came to die for us on the cross and who says, you know what, if you want to follow me, I had to suffer, you will have to suffer. I had to deny myself, you have to deny yourself. I had to carry my cross, you have to carry your cross. We want all the good stuff, the easy stuff. And we tend to forget that to be a Christian is so much more than that. The thing is this, Christianity doesn't work that way. You cannot, it is not like, you know, you go to a buffet and you choose what, you know, I want this and this and that, but I'm not going to have the salad, I'm not going to have the vegetables. This is not how Christianity really works, isn't it? Christianity means following Jesus the true jesus the jesus who is the messiah but the jesus who is also the son of man amen, amen. lastly the son of man is also our glorified lord mark 8:38 jesus says if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory and with the holy angels Jesus says, yes, it is difficult, um, but you will enjoy life even here. You can have abundant life even here, even in the midst of difficulties. And what is more, when I will return as a judge, if you were on my side as I suffered, as I was humiliated, you will be on my side when I come in glory. Is that not wonderful? And I think this is the promise that helped the disciples continue to follow Jesus, even after he ascended to heaven. The promise that one day we will see Jesus in glory. Because none of them became rich. None of them became famous because of following Jesus. All of them were persecuted and died terrible death. Yet the promise of Jesus was this. If you are faithful in difficulty, if you're on my side in difficulty, you will be on my side in glory. When I will return in glory. I want us to look here. I'm um, Not a discipleship and what we are asked to do, but I want us to look at what, um, how Mark talks about Jesus and how Jesus is uh, presented to us here as the glorified Lord. The Messiah, in a way, you can say, was less than what people expected. He was less than what people expected. Uh, they thought that he would be a royal king. He will rule in Jerusalem. He will uh, throw out the Romans, we said. He was a disappointment, if you want, to many people. And this is why the majority of those who followed Jesus at first, when he came to the point of suffering and crucifixion, uh, they turned their back and they said, you know what, this is not the Messiah that we want, right? He is less than what we thought he would be. Yet at the same time, the Messiah was also more than what people expected and hoped for. And I want um, us to look at the scripture where again Jesus talks about him being the Son of Man. And it's a bit of a riddle Um, So you have to be very attentive to really get what Jesus Christ is saying here. This comes at the trial of Jesus. When the high priest is asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? Jesus answers this, I am. For the first time, publicly, not just in front of the disciples, he acknowledges, he admits, I am the Messiah. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right side of the Almighty and coming with the clouds of heaven. What Jesus does is this. He takes two verses from the Old Testament, two prophecies, and he combines them together. The first one is from Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2. And he talks about that earlier in the Gospel as well. Psalm 110 talks about the messianic king, somebody like David who will rule in Jerusalem and he will be the representative of God on earth, right? And this is the messiah people expected, a human messiah. Somebody from the lineage of David who will be a king in Jerusalem, powerful like David. But what Jesus does is this. He takes another promise, something that no one really knew what it meant in the Old Testament. From Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is a vision of a man who looks like a son of man. He's a heavenly being, but he looks like a human person. right? And he comes to the Father. He rides on the clouds and he comes into heaven, meeting God the Almighty. Right? Now, people, although they didn't understand that vision, it was always clear that in a way that was a heavenly being. No one thought this was the Messiah because the Messiah was supposed to be a human king. Right? What Jesus does is he combines this two by saying you will see the Son of Man seated at the right side of the Almighty coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, yes, the Messiah is a human person. I am the Messiah. You ate with me. I'm a human being. I am from the lineage of David. I am king. But you know what? You thought the Messiah would be an earthly king. I come on clouds to meet the Almighty and I am seated not on earth in Jerusalem. I am seated in heaven. I have divine authority. What Jesus Christ does is, and this is why when Jesus says that, when he says, when he implies that I am divine, what is the reaction of the high priest? If you continue reading, it says, the high priest tore his robe. says, blasphemy. How can you say that? He understood what Jesus was was saying, what he was claiming here. The high priest, if Jesus would have said, yes, I'm a Davidic king, I'm the Messiah, he would have said, okay, let's talk about it. What proofs do you have? But when Jesus adds Daniel chapter 7, and he says, I am a heavenly being, he tore his robes, and he says, how can you say that? You are claiming to be divine. You are claiming to be divine. For a Jew, that is something that is inconceivable. Why is it that Jews even today, they reject Jesus? Because we believe that Jesus is divine. For a Jew, in a Jewish mind, there's only one God. And for, for a person who lived on earth to say that I am also divine, it is inconceivable. They cannot accept it. What Jesus does is he combines these two prophecies that are Old Testament scripture, And he interprets, or these two prophecies interpret each other. The Son of Man is no longer a mysterious figure, but a descendant of David, who is given power even in heaven. Not just power in Jerusalem. Jesus says, I'm not just a messianic king. I'm not just the Messiah who has power in Jerusalem. I have power in heaven. Do we understand the claim of Jesus here? He was more than what people hoped. Jesus is much more than the the Davidic Messiah people had hoped for. He He has divine power. He will return as judge. He is God. And this is the point where the Sanhedrin says, let's not even continue the trial anymore. Let's just get rid of him. Let's kill him. Because what he's saying is just crazy. How can a human being, how can a man claim to be God? He was much more than what the Jews expected. Amen? In conclusion, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? This is the question that um, occupied us today and also the last time, last Sunday, we talked about this, when we talked about the Messiah. We like to see Jesus as the messianic king, but do we understand what he means when he says that he's the son of man who is our suffering savior? I believe that just like The disciples in the time of Jesus, many of us, would find it easy to accept Jesus as our Messiah. But are we happy to accept him as the Son of Man? Are we happy to have him as a suffering Savior, somebody who suffers? And more than that, do we understand what it means when he says, you have to follow me? What it means to follow Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. Perhaps we too feel like Jesus, We too feel Jesus is less than what we expected. Maybe some of us are disappointed. We thought that being a Christian is different. It doesn't involve the sacrifice and self-denial that Jesus talks about. The promise of Mark is this. If we trust Jesus, he will become more than we ever hoped for. That's the promise of Mark. He doesn't say that it will be easy. He doesn't say that he's the Messiah that you expected, that he's the Jesus that you expect. What he says is that if you allow Jesus to be Jesus, he will become much more than you ever dreamt of. He will become more than you could have ever hoped for. Maybe what you wanted was a Jesus who is your best body, who ignores the weaknesses and sins that you have. Mark says he's a Jesus who can set you free from that sin. Maybe you expected a Savior who can make you happy on Sundays. Mark says if you allow him to be your savior, he will give you true joy that will last all throughout the week. If you allow him to be God, if you allow him to be the Jesus that he is, he will become more than you have ever dreamt of. Amen. In conclusion, let me end with this story. In 1804, Thomas Jefferson, who was a president, one of the first presidents of the United States and also a Christian believer, decided to do the following. He locked himself up in his office in the White House. And he decided to create his own gospel. Thomas Jefferson was a Christian, but he was not a Christian like you and I. He was a deist. A deist believed that God created the world and then he left the world to its own devices. The world is perfect as it is with all its laws. So God doesn't have to intervene anymore. So Thomas Jefferson sat down with a few copies of the Bible and he started literally cutting out stories from the Bible and removing stories in the gospels that he didn't like. So he removed all the miracles of Jesus. He removed even the resurrection of Jesus, because for him, Jesus was just a human being. He could not accept what the disciples also struggled to accept, that Jesus was more than just a human being. And many people after Thomas Jefferson and after the disciples, I think after their time, are tempted and were tempted to do the same that we remove the bits and pieces from the Gospels that we don't like. We can't do that. We can't do that. We cannot remove, we cannot ignore the things that we do not like. I hope that reading the Gospel of Mark and studying the Gospel of Mark helps us to, to see the true Jesus. It is said that Mark wrote his Gospel in reaction to the tendency in the early church to just focus on the teachings of Jesus. Like Thomas Jefferson, people were happy with the ethical teachings of Jesus. And Mark wrote this Gospel, it is said, as a reaction to that tendency in the early church. If you study the Gospel of Mark, you will see half the Gospel is about the suffering of Jesus. The ratio is different to any other Gospel, to the other three Gospels in the Bible. In the Gospel of Mark, half the Gospel is about the suffering of Jesus. Mark is trying to make a point. He's trying to make the point that if you follow Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, what it means is that you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow him. It is not always easy, but it is worthwhile. He's not the Jesus you wanted, the Jesus you hoped for. He's much more than you could have ever imagined. Amen? Let's all stand. Let's invite the music team to the front, and let's close our service worshipping... This wonderful, savior and wonderful Messiah who has revealed himself to us personally as well. And that is the true wonder of the gospel, is that, yes, we read it in the Bible, we read about Jesus in the Bible, but we are here because He has revealed himself to us as well. Just like with that man who was healed of his blindness, God has healed us as well. He has helped us to open our eyes. He has opened our eyes and enabled us to see him. And what is also comforting for me is this, the disciples didn't understand from the start who Jesus was. Jesus did not give up on them. When Jesus healed the blind man, at first he was still not able to see Jesus properly. He did not give up on him. He didn't say, oh well, you know, go around now, you've got partial vision at least. But he continued to heal him. And this is my prayer for all of us today as well. That wherever we are on our journey with God, in our relationship with Jesus, He will help us to see Him better, to understand Him better day by day. Like the disciples, let's not give up. Let's continue to follow Him. And let's ask Him to heal our eyes every day. Amen.